HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Well, I'm excited. We got Kenny Kane back, and uh, we're going to talk today about biodiversity uh, in forest settings. We're going to talk about wildlife, wildlife habitat. We're going to talk about some things that are creating um, issues across our landscape. And I think this is going to be a good conversation because I was just on a property and I was running a chainsaw. I was thinking about a lot of these things. So now we'll get a chance to discover and learn a little bit more from Kenny. And uh, Kenny, welcome aboard, man. How you been? It's been a little while since we've chit-chat. I've been well, John. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, it's great. Um, so your company is out of Kane, Pennsylvania, Generations yes. Forestry, and you, um, you're in the field a lot, right? Yes. I'm in the field almost five days a week. Okay. And, yes. uh, let's, let's not, we're both North Northeast guys and yep. I don't want to be always Northeast focused, but I think a lot of our experiences are from this region. So when we're talking about yes. certain forest types, um, it may be specific to this region. Like, for example, maple, beech, birch forests are the predominant forest types in our areas, generally speaking. Yep. Um, yep. If you were to look across the northeast landscape, I would say 65, maybe even greater, depending on the state, uh, percentage of our for- our land is in forested settings. And if you were to kind of look at statistically, you know, probably, you know, of that percentage the majority, I would say closer to 50% of that 65%. And, and I'm, I'm rough numbers here, just from numbers that I yep. remember looking up are probably in that maple beach category, category, categorization. Yes. So yes. I, I want to keep yep. that because in mind with people. Yes. Cause in, especially like those species currently you'll find, you know, and like it will stick in Pennsylvania, you know, Pennsylvania, Southern tier, New York, cause those are my, you know, home bases. You know, we deal with a lot of like Allegheny hardwoods, which would be, you know, the black cherry stands that people will notice, like up on the Allegheny Plateau in Pennsylvania, Southern Tier, New York, or like a northern hardwood stands, which are like your oak hickory based forest. And you're going to almost always find beech, birch, maple is, a, you know, some diversity in each of those things, you know, each of those timber types. Yeah, and I just bring that up because I think that's that generally is our perspective on things. Very small yes. percentage of grasslands, 
wetlands are probably in the range of five to 10% across the landscape. Obviously agriculture is probably in the same kind of range when we're talking these settings. So I just want people to have that contextually like understood when we're talking about regions, because I would say, generally speaking, the regions that I'm working in are very heavy, um, forested landscapes and as a result of that you have to be very precise and know a lot about the forest setting and and allow yourself to make some decisions now biodiversity by definition i'll let you define that um we're talking about species so a lot of different species with a lot of different genetic variation that you can start to look at across the landscape and say good bad poor form great health those type of things I would say from my perspective, and a non-forester, yep. biodiversity is critical because different different species are producing uh, different outputs or fruits. I don't know why this yep. is coming to my mind, but box elder is coming to my mind. Now, box elder right. is not extremely prev- uh, prevalent in a lot of areas that I'm working in. How- however, I see that tree as a tree that I would put in a shelter belt. So when you're designing a hunting property... Kenny, I'm getting totally off topic here, but when right. you're designing a hunting hey, property, we're on, we're on topic. We're talking about hunting. We're talking about trees. We're, we're on. We're on point, man. Yeah, we're on you, point. So when you're talking about a shelter belt setting, you're typically using that to um, segregation, kind of reduce wind erosion, th- those type of things. And a, a species mm-hmm. like that grow fast, uh, produces a fruit that that typically is eaten by small mammals. Um, it's easy to hinge cut, create structure, grows at a fast rate. And I think just yep. starting to look at the landscape and defining some of these trees and their purpose will get you a, a little bit further. So I, I just want to kind of start with that. We did a, I did a podcast before on, you know, looking at a particular tree species and de- defining its function and benefit on the landscape. And I think you'll probably dig into that right. today. So uh, yep. I'm going to let you run with it because I'm, I'm a little off today. I'm a little, I'm a little tired. I, I, <laughs> I cut, tim- I cut timber all day yesterday and I woke up, my hands are hurting Hopefully the client, he feels the same way because I, I mean, he was right. working harder it, than I was. Right. Yeah. And of course there's a, you know, a nice cool 85 degrees yesterday, right? <laughs> yeah. Do not cut. I was in, uh, I was in Jamestown area, Jamestown, yep. New York. And, yep. and we probably should have hooked up because it really wasn't that far, probably that far. No, from that hour, hour away from me. Yeah. And, yes. and I was just, you know, I was exhausted after cutting yesterday and, uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of one of those days that creeped up on me and I, I was doing work today in the office. So, all right, let's, let's talk about, uh, let, let's get into, uh, some of the trends and things that you're considering when you're starting to evaluate a forested setting. We set the stage. There's a lot of forest in the landscape. What are you looking for when you're talking about biodiversity and what's your definition? How do you evaluate that? I mean, so I'll, I'll stay away, you know, probably not the textbook version. Someone will say, well, that's not the definition of biodiversity. You know, I'll say as a forester's outlook on a timber stand, you know, for a client is, well, Hey, if, uh, you know, there was a lot of accusations in the seventies, eighties, early nineties that we're trying to create black cherry monocultures. And because black cherry was the most valuable tree species at the time, but naturally due to a high deer herd that Pennsylvania and New York had at that time period, it created a monoculture of cherry because cherry was extremely healthy it was dumping a boatload of seed and it was not a uh, preference deer browse species. So it, you know, the, the diversity of the regeneration that, you know, we were hoping to get in man, well, I can say we, I wasn't alive in the seventies and eighties. I'm a nineties baby. So, you know, I can say my father and, you know, the foresters of uh, the past, 
they they wanted biodiversity and they were getting these monocultures because the deer herd was too high. You know, so the white ash, tulip poplar, the hard, you know, the red maple, sugar maple, white oak, red oak, all these, you know, diverse species that you want, you know, regenerating back in your timber stand uh, were just getting browsed over. So it's really key, you know, when you're harvesting timber to leave a good, you know, diverse species composition in the overstory, like in a shelterwood harvest, so that you have a, you know, a seed source from a multitude of tree species. Because it's, you know, we all know as deer hunters, is it's not every year that you get some bumper white oak crop or uh, red oak acorn crop to regenerate. So you really got to, you know, hold on to that diversity so that, is you know that seed source comes about every few years through each species that you're going to get that regeneration to come in the future can you, you know and especially yes can you stop for a second because i want to just yep. define terms so you use the term shelter wood could you define that and in what circumstances is that typically used forest type how do you manage that can you just describe that to, to folks because they may not understand Yes. Yeah. I should, you know, a uh, shelter wood, I'll say in, in layman's terms would be a, uh, a select harvest, but it's a little different than, you know, you hear the term select harvest, thinning, shelter wood, and then the dreaded diameter limit cuts, which, you know, the high graded cuts, which people will utilize the terms of select harvest intermixed with uh, high grades or diameter limit cuts. So a shelter wood is what, we aren't really focusing on uh, growing the trees any bigger. The shelter wood is you're opening up the canopy to get more sunlight on the ground to, you know, create and get uh, the treetops of the trees that you harvest on the ground to shelter that regeneration that's going to come in the future. So you're looking to really lower the uh, stand density to, you know, I speak in basal area. That's going to be another term. A lot of folks, you know, won't know, but, uh, just say if you spin around and you can, you know, let's say you look out about 50 feet, you're going to go from having 10 to, you know, 10 to 15 trees around you. in what we call a, uh, 10, you know, about a 10th acre plot to six to seven trees. So you're going to almost cut that in half. You know, so more sunlight's reaching the ground because a lot of the uh, tree species that we're, you know, our hardwood tree species that we're growing up here are what we call shade intolerant. So they need sunlight to, uh, to grow. You know, so that's, that's probably the layman's terms as I threw more terms out there that may, may uh, throw some confusion into a shelterwood harvest. You're really looking to, you know, cut I'll, you know, I'll fair amount of trees out, leave your better trees for the seed source to, you know, drop seed and, you know, get the forest regenerated. And then the next step after a shelterwood harvest is, uh, dependent on your political correctness is a clear cut and overstory removal, a regeneration harvest, because you need the maximum amount, amount of sunlight reaching the forest floor to get, regeneration in the hardwood species that we're really looking to grow. You know, if you're on the Allegheny plateau, you know, black cherry, soft maple, if you're going to in the Oak stands, red Oak, white Oak, uh, you know, in your neck of the woods in uh, New York state, you want to get the hard maple, but 
hard maple can be a little bit more shade tolerant, can handle a little bit more shade in the overstory and still grow. But where in a lot of these uh, Allegheny hardwood stands with cherry, tulip poplar, white ash, and we'll dive into that here shortly, uh, they're very shade intolerant. But as we were talking with diversity of birch, the birch is not our target species that we're trying to regenerate. Uh, if you walk through a recent timber harvest and, you know, you look at what the deer are browsing on, they aren't browsing on birch, but I'm sure a lot of us, if you, uh, you know, walk through the woods, you grab a birch branch, you bust it off and you start chewing on it and it's real sweet. You know, you get that birch beer taste. I think the deer would love it, but they don't eat it. And why? I don't know. Yeah. Did it somehow, you know, educate the deer on eating birch, you would have a group of happy, happy foresters. <laughs> well, you, you keep bringing up herbivory and, you know, talking about deer's impact on the landscape. There's been a lot of studies mm-hmm. about that over time and populations yep. have started to ebb and flow in certain areas uh, for disease or otherwise, or just mismanagement. And in some cases you've got areas that are non-hunting areas you know, when I start mm-hmm. looking at the landscape and the utilization by deer, uh, particularly in high populous areas where there's, you know, I, I think of the Midwest, for example, um, and I think about parts of Western New York uh, as an example, the mm-hmm. the volume of invasive plants oh. really kind of, I'm sorry, and I probably shouldn't make this generalization, but it does in, in some capacity correlate to um the deer numbers. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that's, that's not, it's not a linear thing, but the areas that I've gone and worked on, and I, again, I'm just thinking about Western New York, the, the right. amount of non-native plants in those areas. And a lot of those non-native plants are obviously not edible to deer because we're just talking about right. uh, birds for a second. Um, their yep. volume, uh, the volume is, is out of control. And oh. most instances, there's a deer population issue as a result of that. So your ability mm-hmm. to regenerate some of these species that we're talking about is a lot lower. Um, yes. And, and that is the thing that has been um, impactful. And that is so impactful that the quality of hunting in a lot of these areas has degraded significantly. So now I'm yes. taking deer population, quality of food, uh, diversity, and yep. the resultant you know, situation where we're not harvesting as great or as high caliber of deer that we had hoped for. Mm -hmm. So making that correlation is to me um, impactful because we're talking about how to generate a forest stand that has a lot of benefit. And so just to spell that out for people, I, I want people to recognize that because that is a major driver of forest change. Probably one of the largest drivers that I've seen in the landscape. So all you folks that are out in the Midwest, um, that are in the Northeast or in the South, thinking about this topic, think deeper about this because oh. this is the this is the tool trigger tool. Uh, you have the ability to make some changes more than likely. Now some people are not resident landowners, and you know they 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 don't get the the volume of, of deer management permits or or what have you in your area. But this is a major consideration when you're trying to manage deer populations. So can I just want to add add to that? Yes. Yes. And you know, and I can, this was an instance that I had yesterday, Mark, and you know, talking about invasives and uh, 
you know, regeneration and everything else is a, you know, a dear, dear friend of mine, known him for, you know, friend of my father's, he's like a brother to me, you know, known him for 20 plus years and, uh, you know, harvesting some timber for him and it's in overstory removal. And luckily it, it was just dumb luck that the property that he bought was high graded over, but they cut it hard enough and removed all the black cherry out of it. This black cherry was, you know, at its peak 20 years ago when he bought the property, uh, they cut it hard enough and the deer herd was high enough. There's no maple, there's no oak, there's no diversity other than black cherry. So we have a black cherry monoculture in the understory and doing an overstory removal because the deer herd, you know, the deer hunting is, uh, is dropping off. He knows he doesn't have any habitat. You know, the, the way, uh, he's looked at me, he goes, I can have a 75 yard shot in my woodlot. I'm not going to shoot any deer in here. I said, you're exactly right. But boy, it's, it's nice when you can have a 75 yard shot, but you aren't going to get the, you know, the deer numbers. So we're looking and, you know, marking the timber sale and showing them things of why I'm cutting this, leaving that seed source diversity, et cetera. And then we're uh, walking down his driveway and I see Japanese stilt grass. And I have, yeah. I have never seen stilt grass in McKean County, Pennsylvania until yesterday. And I'm like, it got instantly sick to my stomach. I said, Hey, we got to do something now. Like right now, he goes, well, it's only on the edge of the driveway. I said, yeah, but we're going to open up the canopy and we're going to have a skitter that's going to, you know, be driving through here, pulling logs. Then it's going to go to your skid trail. And then it's going to these openings where we have some regeneration started. It's going to take that over. I said, we're never going to get rid of it until, unless we get rid of it now and, you know, prevent it from spreading off of your driveway. So I'm like, Hey, I'm going to be coming down next week with a, you know, a bottle of Roundup, which will contain this. But if the seed source is there, I'm going to have to come do a pre-emergent spray in the spring and just try to keep it at bay and keep it from spreading. But it's like, Oh my God, I never saw it in McKean County made me sick to my stomach. Yeah. And it's, it's going to come with climate. I better be yep. careful what I, with climate change, y'all. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, there's you're going to just see uh, drastic changes and species oh. specific. I mean, we're talking, we're just talking about a, a, a non-native plant. There, stilt grass takes right. over areas, and basically, you get no understory regeneration at all as a result of that. No, Gro- um, grows in thicker. I mean, unbelievable. You'd look at it and say, "Wow, that is a very lush." it's almost pretty. I mean, I hate to say it. Like it's a very, I like having a nice lawn and that thick, nice grass. And you look at it like, wow, if you mowed it, it would look beautiful. It's like, no, it's hell. Yeah. Yeah. And we, 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 uh, Josh Stryker, who again, he subcontracts for me. I've talked about him many times on this podcast. You know, Mm -hmm. he's been down South working with a client to help, uh, rid rid of, of, of that. And I've come up with a new strategy. I think it's going to work. Um, but it's, 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 you know, it's not, I always say fight grass with grass. That's been my strategy for a long time. So yes, you can spray a, a pre-emergent or a post-emergent and deal with it that way. You can also fight grass with grass. So it's a combination. And right. you know, if you're clearing out areas, not a bad strategy is, you know, depending on the time of year, 
you know, you spray your specific herbicide, which will, you know, I'm not going to make a recommendation on this based on, you know, a bunch of circumstances, but you kill it. And then you put down right. some type of uh, grass let's say oats for the spring period. And it's just something yep. to outcompete that plant. So you're always thinking about competition. Um, yep. let's, let's, let's do this. Let's kind of run yes. down the road because I want to talk about wildlife because a lot of people are listening to this and saying, okay, we're talking about biodiversity and we're talking about a lot of different tree species yep. across the landscape. We're just talking about herbivory and we're talking about animals and dealing with non-native plants. Let's start to relate the tree species to the benefit to wildlife. And if you could kind of connect the dots a little bit for yep. folks. Yep. So, I mean, we'll, uh, you know, every everyone's favorite is oak. You know, it's great to have oak. It's, you know, White oak is the A number one deer preference. If you have a white oak, you know, an acorn seed crop, you it's just going to get scooped right up by the, you know, the deer going to eat them up in a second, like candy to them. You know, so it's, that's a great tree, you know, great tree species to have in your forest if you, you know, if you have it. But there's a lot of stands in Pennsylvania, New York, where it's like, oh, the closest white oak is, uh, 15 miles away so it kind of changes your hunting but it's something maybe you could do some planning or just some you know find some acorns when you're out and about somewhere and be chucking them out around your property trying to get some to grow uh you know so that's a great seed source or a great food source it's a great timber species to have if you know it's a very valuable tree right now so uh, you know it's great to have it's good to have a good you know mix of you know, red oak, even, you know, chestnut oak. And it's like, Hey, you aren't going to complain if your forest has some black oak, scarlet oak, pin oak, but those, those aren't your main timber species. They aren't your main wildlife species. Those white and red oak are key. And as I'm talking about oaks, I'm sure there's a lot of folks that, uh, you know, central PA, New York, uh, saw the gypsy moth defoliation. So, you know, here's one of the key things of having diversity in your forest is say you get a real bad infestation of gypsy moth, they're going to target the oaks first and then they become equal opportunity consumers. So the way the gypsy moth is, is the, uh, you know, they lay their eggs, the egg masses, you know, hatch in the spring, the, you know, caterpillars start to grow. And then during the, uh, instars, the different instars of the, uh, caterpillars as they start climbing up the trees and start eating the leaves and that's what you know that's the defoliation the leaves are eaten by the caterpillars so you know they tar as i said they target the oaks first and then they pretty much become equal opportunity consumers they'll take up aspens maple they'll go after white pine but for some reason, they do not go after tulip poplar. And I'm sure there's someone out there listening that's a heck of a lot smarter than me and can tell me why. And I'd love to know exactly why, but you could have tulip poplar, you know, in your uh, stand and it does not get defoliated like an oak does. So that's why you want to have the diversity in your forest in case there's an infestation of, of a bug. So then we can jump over to, uh, you know, white ash. So beautiful tree species, great growing. Um, you know, if you have ash, you have growing on your property of a very good growing site, you know, they, you'll have very good timber along with ash and, but the emerald ash borers, I'm sure, you know, if everyone in this region is, uh, 
you know, from the Northeast to the Midwest to the South and hardwood forests and they have ash, the ash is probably dead or going to be dead, you know? So that's one of those other examples of a bug coming in and wiping out 99% of the ash species is being wiped out by the emerald ash borer. When I, Kenny, now, when, when I cut my yep. timber several years ago and, mm-hmm. you know, it, after I cut the timber, you could see not, not only the volume, I mean, we, you would see the borer, um, mm. you, you would see the emerald ash borer uh, jumping around from stump to stump. Uh, we, we we it was so devastating i've been in so many properties across this state and and you're going in and what happens is the volume of ash that's dying it then it has a tendency to fragment areas it creates Mm -hmm. so much downfall that there's very little 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 you can do and then a lot of times those forces and i don't understand this necessarily it's 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 probably, you know, location, soil type, et cetera. You'll see a lot right. of combination of bush honeysuckle in those same areas. And, and I can't yes. tell you how many properties I've been on where I've seen that combination. So these trees fall down, they die, they create barriers. Um, no other plants. Um, well, there are other plants, obviously, in those areas, but you do see a larger influx in some of these specific yes. vegetation it, types or, you know, forest settings where yep. you have bush honeysuckle in combination and then they that yes. takes over and, those areas right and a, and a lot of and some of what that comes from with those honeysuckle and then those non-natives coming in underneath is you know you have a say you have a 30 acre property and you have not much you know maybe five ten thousand feet of ash on your property so you know you're talking let's just say a hundred hundred trees let's we'll just do that as a tree number a hundred sure. ash trees sure well, you know, to hay for a logger to pay to, you know, get their skitter loaded up on a low boy, dropped off, moved in, build a landing, cut the trees. Well, hey, you know, it, it you can't really justify economically to go in and cut those hundred trees. Uh, you know, so it's like, well, geez, you're you're kind of just stuck letting them die. So with that, you know, sunlight's reaching the forest floor, but it's not enough sunlight to get those desirable hardwood species that are shade intolerant to grow, but it's enough sunlight to get those non-natives and honeysuckles and things like that to take off and grow in those small openings of where the ash was. Yeah, and that, that would describe those situations precisely. So I guess that dappled sun, is a, it's just the right combination that they provides right. an opportunity of course the plant has to be resident it doesn't just show up uh, but, right. but it is right. it is obviously prevalent across our landscapes that we're dealing with yep. so you know i just mentioned that because again i think when the ash tends to die uh, it really creates an environment where it's hard to access these mm-hmm. areas and as a result of that you do get a large influx of, of plant life that you may have to get rid of I want to throw something else out there and we're not doing a, I'm going to eventually do a podcast on how to buy hunting property because I've really like simplified it in four simple Mm -hmm. steps, but it was funny because I was talking to a client a couple weeks ago about purchasing a property and he's going to buy another piece of property. And he said, you know, what, what's one of your basic rules? And I said, evaluate 
the non-native plants. That should be one of your second items that you consider a part of your equation oh, of four different topics. It's your, it's your literally your second, sure. second thing on, on my list of priorities. And yep. if you have a large volume of non-native plants in your landscape, those will be your demise if you do not yes. want to get rid of them. And as a result yep. of that, you know, uh, you're going to be dealing with that issue for some period of time. And if there's no relative benefit uh, because of those plants, guess what? it sets you back and it creates more work. So if you don't want a lot of work and uh, not that properties don't require work, but if you want to reduce your workload, think about that before you buy a piece of property. And, you know, same thing, whether you're looking at a strict hunting property or a strict timber property for an, you know, an investment is if you have a lot of those non-native, non-desirable species in the understory, it's going to take a lot more uh, sweat equity investment or, you know, cash dollar investment of, you know, chainsaw time, herbicide work, you know, things of that sort to either, you know, and it, it follows the same path either to get the correct wildlife habitat that you need and to get the right forest management activities going and to get the desirable regeneration growing. Yeah. And you know, it's, 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 it's a lot more effort into it exactly and it takes a long time to build back a bush like as a bush honeysuckle comparable and i did Mm -hmm. that one podcast on native non-native plants and you know what what to swap out right well if you just let Mm -hmm. things eventually develop right it's going to take some time to find a replacement find a replacement to eventually come into into place so you've got to have a strategy behind this and i'm not going to get into my strategy with my clients and what we do in those circumstances but i'll tell you it's going to take time and you want understory structure that's going to benefit you and and those are some of the decisions that you need need to start thinking about um because when you get into these uh wildlife plans the things that i do that's a huge part of the equation it's just not a model where you go and you put a bedding area in here well what type of food quality is in that area and it, it that right. the quality in a, in a measurement, high, medium, low, degrades exponentially when you have non-native plants in normal circumstances. Yep. So, yep. all right, I'll get off yep. my soapbox. Uh, keep going, <laughs> man, because the, 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 yeah. the insect you know, stuff is just, interesting. Uh, yes, the, I mean, the insect stuff, and it's, you know, it's like, okay, hey, we've been dealing with the emerald ash borer for the last decade. And it's like, well, shit, it's kind of, you know, in Western PA where I'm at, it's here and gone, but, you know, been working a ton in the uh, Delaware County, New York region where it's like, holy smokes, the ash is still healthy or yep. Mark the timber sale two years ago. And it was mind blowing. See ash that was that healthy. And then as the timber was cut last fall and I'm going through the log pile and I'm like, holy shit, the emerald ash bore, you could see the, uh, you know, the gallery. So if any, you know, anyone doesn't really know what you're looking for in the emerald ash borers you'll know that the boars there if you look at the and especially now go out and look at your ash trees look up you know look at the canopy is it looking thin is there a lot of uh you know water sprouts where there's limbs popping off lower on the tree where they never came before you know is the canopy looking thin and then you'll see these uh holes and my girlfriend refers to them as I was teaching her about them, the, the D bugs, because they make a hole the shape of a D and that's how they go into the bark to get into the cambium layer of the tree. 
and that's what makes it hard to treat anything for the for the emerald ash borer. We can't treat it like uh, gypsy moth, where we do a, a foliar application with helicopters and airplanes, where we spray an insecticide. It lands on the leaves. The caterpillar eats the leaves, and it gives them a tummy ache and they die. You know, easiest way to put it. Uh, so with the ash borer. You can't do that because they're not eating the leaves. They're eating on the, you know, the inside of the bark of the tree, you know, put in layman's terms. So the only way to treat it is to inject the tree with an insecticide, you know, so it's flowing through the xylem and phloem of the tree, you know, so the vascular system of the tree, the bug eats it and it, you know, kills them. But it's really, you know, say you have a tree that's worth $200, well, it's going to cost you $200 to treat that tree. So economically, you can't do it on a landscape base, you know, so that it, it's just one of the, one of the challenges in dealing with, uh, you know, or one of the challenges we're dealing with in you know, whether it's forestry, whether it's wildlife, whether, you know, just forest health or like, you know, different things that's going on with inse- insects coming in. And then, uh, you know, one of the other main factors that we're going to be dealing with in tree health and, you know, folks in the Southern part of PA, Maryland, the Carolinas, you know, if there's folks out there uh, that are listening to us, the uh, hemlock woolly adelgid that's coming in and wiping out the hemlock trees. And it's, it's getting, you know, rumor mill is I haven't seen it myself, but they've found it in Northwestern Pennsylvania, which I don't know as much as probably I should about the hemlock woolly adelgid, but to identify it, it kind of looks like a white peach fuzz on the bottom end of a, uh, you know, of a hemlock bough and it will kill the, you know, it's an insect that'll kill the hemlock tree. And back in uh, 2014 and 2015, they were my uh, first winners, or, you know, my first two years of working full time and out of college and it was so freaking cold. I mean, in February, we only had like five days that went above zero in Northwestern PA. And I'm like, this is miserable. But you look at the forestry aspect of it, that kept the uh, hemlock woolly adelgid at bay. Those really cold, god-awful winters is what we need to keep a lot of these, uh, you know, a lot of these insects that are attacking our forests to keep them in check and you know that can follow in with all the climate change stuff and yeah you yeah. know and hey it not not going down any political spectrum but you know hey in one of my climatology courses that uh, i took at penn state and the professor is a good he was a good dude good class probably didn't pay attention as much as i should have <laughs> but you know that happens you're at penn state there's a lot of fun to be had yeah. and uh, yep. you know and he goes it's not your, uh, you know, climate. What he said, climate. The the Earth has been warming since the last ice age. You know, it's a, it's a climate shift. It's not a climate change. You know, and it's is is going and buying a Tesla and doing that the right thing. Is it going to save all the hemlock trees? No. But you know that that's a political spectrum that people have their views on, but. You know the the changing of the climate definitely does have impact on, uh, you know, on on the forests. And you know now there's research being done. You know, and keeping on this biodiversity kick, uh, 
you know, you heard me start out with uh, or, uh, black cherry monocultures that were created because, you know, in the 80s and 90s, due to the high deer herd and due to the extremely healthy cherry, you know, black cherry, which is great. But now into the uh, other aspect of, of, I'll say, environmental impacts. So they're doing research up here on uh, how the Clean Air Act could possibly be causing a negative health or be caught, you know, be uh, causing the black cherry health to decline. If you can believe that. Interesting. There, <laughs> I, and I don't want to get into any of the research and stuff that I'm no. thinking about and, and engaging in, in this particular arena, because there are some recent studies out that talk about methods that, that have not been considered that likely should be considered. And there's a couple leading scientists that, that I've been following recently on this particular topic, getting way off the mm-hmm. deer stuff for, for, you know, for, for this, this, but I, I think those things are interesting right. because as I guess, as landowners um, or people mm-hmm. leasing property, we need to think consciously of the ecosystem. And I think that's really the, the foundation. Yep. You know, what am I doing to the ecosystem? In the, in the one example of, you know, applying an insecticide, um, you know, you're wondering, you know, is there a real purpose behind that? And let me let me break it down. Let's think about white ash for a second. And let's yep. let's take it one step further. Let's talk about the wildlife had, habitat benefits of white ash. White ash produces mm-hmm. a winged fruit. Okay, yep. uh, animals eat that fruit. That's how it. That's how it obviously repopulates itself, etc. You know, squirrels, mice, small ba- mammals, they benefit from that. White-tailed deer right. eat white ash. Okay, they eat it at certain stages of its life, um, and they'll eat it usually when it's uh, sprouting. You know, maybe eight, twelve, fifteen inches, and they'll eat the tops. And once it yep. gets to a certain stage, it's not as palatable. And they also eat at a certain time of year. So pay attention to that. One more yes. thing. Talk about wildlife habitat benefits. And wildlife habitat probably isn't a generic term, but the benefits to other animals. And in this case, let's talk about birds. So big degrading white ash trees seem to be awesome for cavity nesters. And obviously we want to increase bird mm-hmm. populations across the landscape. So reason I'm bringing this up is sometimes changes like that do bring an evolution and benefit to the ecosystem. Decomposing wood matter, that's important. That's important in the landscape. So start to think about, you know, when you're managing your wood lots, how much dead wood do I have? Now, you don't want so much dead wood that, that, again, we talked about the example earlier of ash all over the place and you can't get in those areas. Right. It's dangerous to be there. Exactly. I felt that way the other day when I was in the woodlot. I mean, we're hinge cutting yes. a, a, just a crap ton of trees. And mm-hmm. I was worried about getting hit in the head by a dead ash. Right. You know, oh, in, in those sure. circumstances. For sure. But, yep. but, but taking, the, taking the species and thinking about its life cycle or the fruit benefit or, you know, just, just, just the environmental benefit of its decomposing state and thinking about applying that and thinking more in-depthly about you know, recycling, because you're essentially recycling nutrients in the landscape and yep. the ultimate benefit. I mean, I yep. really get perturbed. I don't even know why I'm going on this road, but I'm getting perturbed when I see people that are cutting their timber and they're taking every single treetop out. They're they're not, 
they're not looking at the state and benefit of the forest health because degrading trees provide a whole bunch of macro micronutrients to the existing resident trees that are residual trees that, that reside in the landscape. And why wouldn't you think about the forest health in, in that equation? Yep. Oh, I, I know why they want to pull it out and get firewood or they want it aesthetically pleasing. Or by the way, you don't want to build good structure and cover for animals, small animals, deer, et cetera. And that yep. to me, you know, it doesn't serve a purpose that it, that it would otherwise. So I start to think about the benefit on the landscape because we have this perception that aesthetically pleasing woodlots may be quote unquote, you know, um, the look and feel is, is, is making oh. the nostalgia of this, this property just set itself apart from everybody else. Yes. Come, come up, come up to Tully, New York and come see my property. You will be disgusted. You'll throw up on yourself and you say, what the heck is this guy doing? And if you looked at the client's yes. property that we just cut, 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 uh, we made some disaster areas. Um, it's, it's organized chaos and, and we created organized yes. chaos with a purpose. So, all right. Yep. And, I, and I'll look at it and I, I'm with you on that where it's like, I'll look at a, uh, you know, a timber stand where it was like, Oh, well this, we did a clear cut and I look at it and I'm like, this clear cut looks like shit. And I have someone beside me that says, yeah, they cut so many trees. And I said, they didn't cut enough trees. There's too much shade out there. More trees needed to be cut. There needs, you know, there needs to be more down woody debris protecting that regeneration. There needs to be more yeah. trees on the ground, so more sunlight's reaching the, you know, reaching the ground, and uh, yeah, where some people they leave, and that's part of the reason why people are accepting of high grading and diameter limit cutting, because there's trees to look at, but the, you know the trees that they're looking at aren't the, uh, you know, and it. They aren't. They don't have the diversity because, say, you're in an Allegheny hardwood stand and it's been high graded, and all the larger, you know, black cherry, tulip poplar. You know, we'll throw ash in there, even though it's probably dead by now if it's still left. But you know, the the diversity. You know, the soft maple. All you know, everything that's out there was cut, and you're left with, you know, black birch and beech that's dying with the beech scale. And that there's trees left. So people are like, oh, well, there's trees left, but the wrong trees are left. And there's too many of those trees that are, are left, you know? And, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and then one of the other things like with the, uh, you know, where they're pulling the whole tree out and there's, you know, on the forestry aspect, there's a time and a place for it. You know, like I can remember growing up and whole tree chipping was kind of a thing you know there's a couple contractors that did it but not many and i can remember my father and his boss at the time hated it hated whole tree chipping through the you know i remember hearing about it when i was five six years old you know so in the early 90s like oh it's the worst it's the worst and i remember you know right when i got into forestry school i just had this that how bad whole tree chipping was but then you know, currently we do, we do a fair amount of whole tree chipping in, in these high graded stands where we're cutting, you know, where it was diameter limit cut. And it's a, just a major mid story of, you know, say six to 12 inch diameter, six to 10 inch diameter beach and birch, where the only way to economically manage this forest again for the future is to whole tree chip it. So you can, you know, 
economically create it and then have money in the bank to do some herbiciding, to do some other work and, you know, get that sunlight on the ground to try to regenerate it. But, you know, there's, there's some instances, but it's one of those things where there's a time and a place for it. It's not meant for every stand, but there is some stands where it's like, Hey, this, this is the right thing to do. Yeah. But yeah. you know, it's very much time. There's a time and a place. The, the very whole, much. So. The whole tree chipping strategy is there's there is a small economic benefit i'm assuming mm-hmm. yeah yes yeah. you know and for the and the way we look at it the uh, client of ours bought a huge there you know an investment company and it bought a huge chunk of properties i mean it was like seven eight thousand acres huge you know that's a big <laughs> I'd love to own seven or 8,000 acres. Mm-hmm, me too. And, and it was a uh, industry owned land. It was, uh, you know, diameter limit cut. They cut the big cherry out of it. And, but if you would look at it and be like, wow, it's, it's not a bad property. But if you knew the history of that property and then you're looking, you're like, Oh man, like I can't, you know, go in and do a, a traditional shelterwood harvest or select harvest because there's so many of these low value, you know, I'll use the term pulpwood, but firewood type trees, you know, wouldn't, you'll never be able to cut boards out of them, you know, that you have to get rid of. And the only thing economically viable is to cut them and, you know, chip the whole tree. But with that, the, the diameter distribution of this mid canopy goes from, one inch diameter, so let's say the size of your thumb, up to, you know, 12, 14 inches. And, you know, so our feller operator, his job is to cut every beech, birch, striped maple um, that is from one inch in diameter up. So all those one inch to five inch diameter trees, you know, that mid canopy brush, we'll call it is left down on the ground. So we have that, you know, down woody material left laying on the ground while the six inch to 12 inch stuff that's cut and, you know, hauled to the chipper is, you know, utilized for an economical product and hauled to the paper mill, you know, or renewable resources of paper. So, you know, it it works that there's enough material left on the ground where a lot of the uh, whole tree chipping that was done previously it was going in and they would cut the pulpwood out. They would cut the logs out and pull all the tops and it didn't work because there was still that mid canopy of brush. So there was no downwoody debris to protecting any of the uh, desirable regeneration. There was nothing left for nutrient, you know, the recycling of nutrients from the uh, down trees. And, you know, it, it and it just didn't work because of that. But now with the way we kind of shifted things of cutting all the junk, getting rid of all of it, more sunlight on the ground, you have the, you know, the smaller brush type trees left laying on the ground, you know, to, you know, protect regeneration, to recycle nutrients, that, that works, but it's a very niche, (laughs) you know, it took, it took a lot of coercing of our, uh, you know, of our feller operator. And now he takes, you know, we showed him like, Hey man, like, come look at this. Come look what you did five years ago. He goes, Holy shit. It's thicker than hell. And I said, yeah, but 
look at this. Here's tulip poplar. Here's red oak. Here's black cherry. Here's soft maple. Here's hard maple. Here's ash. There's all, you know, cucumber. Every species that we could imagine is growing in that. And I said, because look what you did. You cut all the shit. Now let's go over here to the very first block that we all did together. And you didn't cut all the shit. And he goes, Oh my God, it looks like hell. Yeah. I said, exactly. And he, and he puts pride on it. Like he puts pride on what he does, but it's, it's a very niche thing. And, you know, so that, that's what it takes is finding that right person to help man, you know, just like your clients looking for the right person to help them create the best, you know, deer hunting property they can get, you know, for me to find the best, you know, I can tell someone what to do with the forest, but Hey man, I, I can't hop in a timber pro and run that thing. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so you got to yeah. have that really, really yeah. good guy to do so. Yeah. And I'd like, I'd like to learn, but I just can't see the guy letting me hop in his three quarter million dollar machine. just for fun. <laughs> uh, that get real expensive really fast for him. Well, and the other thing I'll say too, is to your point is, you know, it takes a really crafty individual that has a specific skill set, and, and it, you know, that to, and I'm not, I'm trying I'm not trying to boast anybody or even myself for that matter, but to get in the woods mm-hmm. and start making some decisions, I watch guys go in and um, I, I can think of a couple guys that I follow and, and pay attention to. And literally I watch them walk around the hinge cut every single tree. Um, yes. and, and I just thinking to myself, I'm like, man, there's such a specific strategy for hinge cutting that, that, that defines, uh, well, there's purposes behind that particular technique yep. that I'm very specific yep. in using. And I'm very specific on the trees that I use it for or use it with. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's the things, that precision, that type of knowledge base, you cannot take. This is something that I've been really, I, I just talked to uh, two, two individuals that are future clients of mine about mm-hmm. taking the time to hire somebody and then having to the, spend the extra money to have that person stick around to give you the demonstration to show you what to do. If you do not understand, and, and you can't teach everybody everything in, in just a couple of days time, but if you don't have right. basic principles and rule sets, and then from that, you know, layout examples, and then what trees to cut, why, where to cut them, the, the volume of cutting, how to create the right amount of density. If you don't have a good understanding of that, and you can't explain that to a client, okay. I really... I, I really step back and say, what are you doing? And it's really yes. worth hiring somebody to, to help figure that out. Yeah. There's a lot of it, stuff about full, like the forest management side that, that I don't, I don't particularly fully grasp or understand and that's okay. But if that's an important aspect of the plan, we bring somebody in like you to help educate both of us. So we're not yes. making bad decisions. You know? Yep. Yep. And, and I see this. So we're, uh, you know, a landowner thinks, well, Hey, I, I know what, and I'm sure you run into it more so than I do because you're, you know, your niche is the deer hunting and deer hunting properties is you run into folks like, Hey, I came out and did a bunch of hinge cutting. And it's like, Holy shit. You realize you just hinge cut like your Oak, you know, pole stand. <laughs> and it's like, why did you do that? You, your neighbor has a, your neighbor has a 40 acre clear cut out back your 10th acre hinge cut isn't going to do shit. Those deer in that 40 acre clear cut, but you need to bring them to you. You know, it's, and it's, and I'll say it's better to make the investment to hire, you know, uh, throw, you know, throw a feather in our hats, you know, to you and I, it's worth the investment up front to hire a professional, you know, 
a professional, you know, deer guy, a professional timber guy up, up front than to think you can do it yourself. And then you are really paying to fix it. It's easier to pay to get educated, to get it done right the first time than to come in and fix a bunch of mistakes. Yeah. And the thing is, we're trying to build suitable habitat that's utilized on a regular basis all season long that is Mm -hmm. going to increase your hunting effectivity. Again, that is my focus. All right. That is essentially my mission statement in this equation of my business. It creates a very precise perspective. And I was telling this client, I just had a really good time with this client the other day, Mm -hmm. just taking the time to think about that more in depthly and then starting to think about every tree you're going to cut, how you're going to cut it, how you're going to lay it in this location, why you're laying it in this location, what other work do you have to do as a result of that? How do you make your work in the woodlot more efficient? I mean, it's thinking through so many aspects of laying out a hunting property. I can't, I can't fathom um, individuals spending this immense amount on, on hunting properties and, and not having a vision. The, the intention right. behind this podcast really is to help people establish a vision. I've said, and I just did this one on how to hunt podcast, or I don't know, it was a, it was a pretty good podcast. If anybody has a chance to listen to that one, um, I broke down, it was supposed to be about food plots and I started breaking down all these other things and, and really the, the, the goal out of, of this podcast is to empower people to start to build a vision to start making changes and thinking about today, a lot of different plants on your property. Really, that's a foundational kind of exercise that will be valuable. Thinking about that this climate shift, thinking about what species may be more prevalent as a result of that. Maybe in your particular climate, red maple is more prevalent or hop hornbeam yep. is more prevalent. Um, and those Uh, particular plants or we're talking about insects which are changing the dynamics of the landscape Um, fungal diseases all those things that go into the biodiversity aspect a lot of plants a lot of nutrient rich plants and a lot of different plants i mean that's kind of all we're talking about here in this equation and it's just kind of going through and saying okay what's the purpose of the plant does it benefit deer does it not benefit deer um, and, and this yep. is stuff that I work on with my clients. I mean, I bring up this example of hemlock. I'm like this hemlock nut and it's got all these benefits and why does it benefit and why is this better than this tree? And you're starting to kind of see competitively who's better. And I think that's starting to think more along the lines of how you develop the, a very, uh, we'll say, suitable habitat for a specific animal or uh, for a bunch of different animals for that matter. You know? Yep. Yep. I mean, because you're where you find the best deer, you know, with us, me, I'm a bigger deer hunter than I am any other type of hunter. Yeah. But where you see the deer, you see the turkeys, where you see the bears, where you see the grouse, where you see, you know, where you see all the different bird species, it's all going in the same direction. Yeah. And it, it ends up, you know, you're thinking about the composition of that stand that helps to dictate. I mean, uh, bears can be very, very much of a generalist. Um, and, yes. but, but there's, there's certain bird species that are very, you know, habitat specific. We'll, we'll talk about mm-hmm. grouse and another podcast down yep. the road. I have a guy specifically that's going to kind of break down their specific needs, demand seasonally. And I think that's one thing I think I don't hear a lot of on podcasts about talking 
specifically, and, and this is obviously a, a white-tailed deer podcast, um, but thinking right. about the ecosystem and the related benefits, and, and, and I do have some people that are pretty knowledgeable in that area, but I think your knowledge is really impressive because I'm interested to see, I know you were, I was poking because I know you're doing some videos with Bo, and I, I don't know Bo very yep. well at all, but I yep. know that there was probably some topics surrounding some of the things we've talked about today of that. Yes. So yes. I, I'm interested it, to see it, that series. That, yeah, the, those uh, the the videos that Bo and I did should be they they should be pretty cool. I I, I think they will be. We got to see a uh, timber harvest, the one that I was talking about, where we did the whole tree chipping. Yeah, from literally the day they cut those trees to one to the very first one that we did eight years ago, and you get to see it step by step by step, where it it's it's going to be really cool to see. You know, what would be really fun, Kenny, and I'm just throwing this out because this is my podcast mm-hmm. and I can talk about whatever I want, I feel right now. Yep, that's right. <laughs> I, would be, I would think it would be very interesting for at some point um, to meet up and maybe there's listeners that want to meet up collectively and to see some of the projects um, that you're working on. Um, I'm going to eventually oh. hold a day on a client property, uh, Tim Tim um, Russell, who's on this podcast, he's also a forester. Mm-hmm. He's been pushing me to do that because we, we want to start educating people um, and we want to give them the kind of the right tone. And I think it would be, it would be something that maybe uh, we could combine forces on it would be a very good oh, event for you be, and me. That would be awesome. Yeah. That would be awesome to do because and this is one of the things I, uh, I said with Bo is guys get into forestry because they're introverted but anyone that knows me and so far from our few conversations you know me well enough i can freaking talk forever <laughs> but a lot yeah you know, i'll say 90 percent of my classmates at penn state they're introverts they want to and i'll say of our you know 10 field guys eight of them don't want to meet with a client they just want to go practice forestry right you know so right I'm the one that goes and meets with the clients and, uh, you know, does that type of stuff. But so there's not enough information out there from foresters to show, you know, Hey, like there's a, a boatload of very good, you know, deer hunting information on YouTube and a lot of, you know, great hunting information out there, but there's not a boatload of forestry information of, you know, t- of, I, I like using the term of bridging the gap between forest management and wildlife management and how it's heading down the same path, you know? So yeah. something, something like that would be a home run to educate, you know, whether you are a public land hunter, whether you're a private land hunter or a private land owner or a VC, like to bridge the gap so that say your hunting lease is on a hundred acre, uh, you know, a hundred acre or a thousand acre track that's owned by an investment company to educate you on, on what's going on in these timber harvests as to what's being cut for what reason. And, you know, learning how to take advantage of these harvest areas and hunt them correctly. Yeah, absolutely. And we said earlier, we looked at this, well, I was shooting around numbers. I wonder how accurate I was even in shooting those numbers around. But we talked about the volume of forest on the landscape, particularly in our areas. Um, that's a little bit different in the Midwest and certainly different in the South. Yes. In, in Northeast, where I generally work, I mean, those percentages are really high. And I would say right. that anybody who's bought property that has 
diversity and diversity is good. And we're talking about grassland, mm-hmm. prairie land, you know, uh, wetlands, you know, forested lands, you know, different type of cover and vegetation types. Those are all positive things. But in each one of those areas, there's little niche things that you can do in addition right. to larger macro strategies um, that can really kind of fine tune movements can help again, control and not just control, create and shrink core home ranges. I've been telling people yep. this for years and I think people think I'm crazy. There's a reason why on 50 acres, I'm attracting the largest deer in the area that aren't there years before. The, the, for sure. the strategies that you can employ on your hunting properties, just with these biodiversity, just having a lot of different things in a lot of different areas, a lot of different yes. age class, uh, genetic variation, all those things that go into it and starting to assess things at a finer level, you will attract more animals more frequently and you will shrink their, their home ranges. True, mm-hmm. true, 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 true. Yes, I don't have a GPS study that proves that's precisely, but they will be on your property more frequently so that that. That, you know, my hypothesis is correct. Um, yep. And you will attract more deer. Watch your immigration numbers. The number of deer that f- that really fluctuate in and out of the property will increase at a very large percentage rate. I track that. What I, oh, I better be careful here because I don't want to go against anybody that's been on this podcast. But I'm going to be controversial for a second. I pay great I'm, I'm very Yep. Okay. Bring it on. All right. <laughs> I, like I, I just had I just had a conversation with an individual uh, yesterday, and my my way home from a client, a friend of mine who's actually been on this podcast, and we talked a little bit. I pay attention to the deer populations throughout the season. Uh, my my daughter mm-hmm. and I today went over to the land, and we kicked up a fawn, and she was like, "Oh my god!" And the number of fawns that I have right now sitting on my property are four fawns. Two years ago, there were two fawns. Um, one lived, one okay. died. There's four there that are resident. Right now, they're well, whatever. We're in um, six, seven weeks birth stage, right? Um, the high, yep. They're in a very high percentage of survivability right now. Yep. Um, they're very mobile. Um, I've got a lot of diversity on my property. So we went from one or two fawns down to four fawns. Four fawns looks like at this point, they're all alive. In addition yep. to that, I've had more bucks visiting their, you know, what typically wouldn't be their, their summer range. Now they're spending a little bit more summertime on my property, which I know I'll steal one or two of those during hunting season. And I'm just noticing a major influx of change because all the little things that I'm doing on my hunting property. Right. And I'm just finding right. that paying attention to those indices all season long saying, okay, when it comes to doing a study of population or just seeing you know, what the current ratios are that fluctuates so dramatically during certain points of year because of the habitat that you have on your property, you need to yep. start paying more attention to that uh, during individual intervals. And, and this is a little bit controversial to what was said in another podcast, but I pay attention and I didn't want to push this in that podcast, but I pay attention to the influx of deer during the hunting season and the basis of that. Um, it may be artificial because of some circumstance of hunting pressure, but if it was naturalized, the habitat alone is a function of driving interest on my property, period. Not even a question. So to go down a rabbit hole, start paying attention to what the deer numbers look like, the mm-hmm. ratio, the age class, those things on your hunting property, because ultimately that correlates to some factors, the majority of them being maybe hunting pressure, but separate from that is the quality of habitat that you have. Absolutely. Without Absolutely. question. hundred percent. The, 
the quality of the habitat because now that you've created better habitat, you can hold those deer and keep maintaining good habitat quality while maintaining good near deer numbers. And that is the key. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Some of those shoot, no shoot decisions, as you see, and some of my strategies with the clients is Mm -hmm. we're continuing to build interest even after the season, the media immediately after the season, you know, ends your hunting season ends, you better be out there with a chainsaw, running a chainsaw. Yep. Give them yep. an incentive to stick around. This is a huge strategy that I employ with my I mean, this is that's that's a secret right there. That is a secret yep. period. Continuing to yep. enhance your property annually to create that level of yes. attraction and interest. I mean, there's a yes. buck on my property. I have no idea where it came from right now. And let me tell you something, who's going to stick around? And, and I ch- I'm changing their summer ranges as a result of, of the influx of strategy in this, this whole equation. Yep. So nobody can tell me, and, and I don't care who you watch on YouTube and, and everything like that. Yes, deer have summer and fall ranges and every deer is different. But there are some deer that are going to create a level of traction as a result of your design, your setup, your layout, your habitat, etc. And you're going to attract mm-hmm. that deer. And guess what? You're going to kill them. Last season... I, I, I got I can't stop here. Last season, you, you woke <laughs> me up now. Uh, now I got you going. <laughs> last season, you know, I, I, uh, I told the story of the buck that I had killed. Um, and, and I don't know if I've told that on the podcast, but I told it on a bunch of other podcasts, you know, his, his core range changed. It changed when he, when he turned, uh, when he was a four-year-old, I had never mm-hmm. seen that deer on my property. All of a sudden he starts showing up at a high interval. Then as a Mm -hmm. five-year-old, his movements were as predictable as they had ever been. And, you know, it's amazing to see that change. And that happens every single year. This isn't new. This isn't new to any of the properties that I've hunt or manage. My clients are seeing the same thing. And um, you may only have one or two good bucks to, you know, maybe go after and define good in your own terms. But, you know, a three-year-old or older, uh, maybe you just have Mm -hmm. one. Maybe you don't have any. But you're seeing more of an influx of those quality deer because of the effort applied. And I just, I can't emphasize that be empowered, have a vision. Think about these things we're talking about today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sorry, Kenny. I just, Oh no, I love, I love it, John. I love the energy. (laughs) Yeah. My energy's there. I I've been feeling like this uh, very empowered, uh, uh, having a lot of empowered discussions and, you know, taking, taking ego out of it and just focusing on what are the real factual pieces that I'm seeing across the landscape? I mean, if -hmm. you have trail camera data that shows there's a lot of deer on your property and you're doing a lot of work on your property, that's a good thing, you know? And I think that that's, that's not something to dispute. And if you see more of that every single year, then you've got to have a different strategy. Maybe you've got a herd control strategy you have to focus on. Right. I mean, and that's, and I'll say, you know, in my neck of the woods and a lot of my buddies are the, you know, public land hunters. And it's like, well, Hey, this is my spot. And I'm a culprit of it. Like the property that I hunt was one that we managed for 15 years. And well, yeah, I knew where all the timber cuts were. I knew where everything was and I could just hunt it where it's like, Hey, uh, yeah, this stand we cut eight years ago, it's time to shift. I'm like, well, but this is where I've, and I'm a, I am even, you know, I know what I'm doing. I won't say I know what I'm doing hunting, but it's like, no, this is my spot. I always see bucks here. I'm going to kill another buck here. But it's like, 
No, wake up. You shifted the habitat. You created the habitat on the next hollow over because you were cutting timber and doing shelterwood harvest and regeneration harvest. Right. You know, the habitat's not right here right now. So it shows like if you're managing an individual property, there is yearly maintenance that you need to do to, you know, one, you're going to benefit on the timber management, forest management aspect of it, and to keep the deer management of it, to keep those deer on your property. Yeah. And, and here's, here's something to be said for that. So, uh, Josh Streichert and I were talking the other day, he's, again, my, the guy that does subcontracting work with me, he's my partner. We were talking a little mm-hmm. bit about our strategy. So I'm coming back from Western New York and, um, my family's got a farm. I th- we've talked about this before down in Allegheny County. Yep. So I was headed, uh, headed back that way. And I was just telling them, you know, I was looking at the landscape off the Southern tier express and I was, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. breaking down the landscape as we get on there. I'm talking about, okay, these are the type of, you know, uh, areas that I want to hunt this uh, and I can break down the whys and that I can, you know, start to specialize in the areas that I'm going to focus on. Now, Allegheny is probably not the best region specifically because they don't do a whole lot of forest management in a lot of those areas. But regardless, right. you know, when I'm starting to break down like the specifics and uh, we're going to do some public land hunting this year. Um, I'm going to get away from my very strategic, like I'm going to kill on October 24th at three o'clock. And, uh, you know, that those type of hunting strat. And, you know, I'm going to say another thing, the how to hunt podcast that I just did. I, I, I let a lot of statistic out that I, I feel like I did not do this to pump myself up. I did not do this to um, say I'm an elitist. But when you design a hunting property really, really well, you get really, really good at um, figuring out when to hunt deer. Um, and and I haven't owned property up until just four years ago. I, I really just didn't want to spend any money. I bought the, right. my own property. And, you know, the interval of success is so great. You know, hunting three times and killing three bucks, uh, you know, that is, you know, that, that's 100% success. Every time I went out, yep. I killed a buck. Now I did yep. the statistics up to that point, so I killed eight bucks in twelve hunts. Um, that's like in the sixty-seven percent right. range. Right, that, that is excellent. Yeah, I mean that's. I mean we're killing. I'm, that's the one percent deer, and you're killing him at a at a high interval. Now, mm-hmm. those are on some of that is with hunting with other people and and, and those type of instances of competition. Now you get to state land. Now you get to properties that are unmanaged. Your success rate and probability mm-hmm. goes down exponentially. I'm not going to have that level of yes. success. But in the process, you're learning a lot more on how to hunt them in these natural environments. And I think that's really important because what I really kind of, my breadth of knowledge, you know, I hunted suburban areas growing up. I hunted like industrial parks. And then I hunted, mm-hmm. which was like, you know, I'm hunting like behind a, a drugstore. Okay. And then yep. I'm hunting um, in suburban areas. Then I was hunting big woods. Then I was hunting um, private land. And I was hunting all these at different times. So I'm, I'm hunting behind a house. Then I'm hunting behind a drugstore. Then I'm hunting, you know, in a thousand, two thousand acre forested land. And it really kind of brings you back to kind of understanding that all these all these different landscape types are so different and unique and how they use those areas. It, you have to be so in tune. You can't just go out to state land and be like, all right, we're going to figure it out. Now no, you can. And a lot of guys do that, but there's a lot of time and effort like Johnny Stewart and some of these other guys I pay attention Ooh. to. They put a ton of effort into scouting. Uh, Greg Lutzinger is a great example. Those guys are yep. scouting 24 seven. I don't have the opportunity to do that. Um, but if I did, 
I would have to in order to be successful. And again, you're not yep. going to see it, percentages like, in, you know, perfect the percentages. Vision, in the vision that those guys have scouting, like, I'd like to say I'm, I'm a woodsman. Uh, you know, I can sure. find my way around the woods, but the weekend that I spent with them at Bo's scouting camp, the, their, their eyes, what they see in the woods, like for deer, was second to none. Yeah. It was mind blowing. Yeah. Mind blowing with yeah. those, you know, all the guys that were there. But like, you know, Johnny was one of the funniest guys I ever met. Just met him that weekend, you know, met him Friday night when we left Sunday, you know, texting each other all the time, like a very good friend. Like, it, sure. just those were some good dudes. I will say this that's interesting, and I don't, I don't, I've talked to most of those guys, so I, I know them, they know who I am, but the, the thing that I've, I've been impressed with is I think it's, I think from my experience, it's very, it's simpler for me to figure out where to hunt deer. I know when to mm-hmm. hunt on my, and you know, if you shifting 10 feet this way versus 10 feet that way, picking that tree, looking at this movement location and why it's the matter of when understanding when is the most temporal piece of this hunting equation um, without trail camera data or even just natural observation from some distance away. So you're not creating, you know, any negative stimuli. You've got to really think about when and when is the most hard mm-hmm. is the hardest predictor. You don't know when to hunt those deer. You can have an indication right. like once leaf fall happens, of course, things open up. Maybe it won't be utilized as much. It's an obvious thing. But if that's all the same and the density of cover is, you know, similar in some state, they're using those areas at a certain time for a certain purpose. And then, by the way, you're hunting obviously state land you're dealing with influx of pressure or maybe not depending mm-hmm. on your your landscape and and you know how many people are hunting those areas but the when is the most critical thing so i would suggest if anybody is you know hunting public land or they're working on their property start to assess when and the when mm-hmm. is directly correlated to the quality of habitat i keep saying that um, you can cut a big swath area and if it has a lot of diversity they don't have to get up and move a lot the when is going to be more frequently. You're going to have more right. whens in that equation. Um, the whys, a part of that, obviously answer the whens. So when I'm mm-hmm. starting to look at the, the landscape and deciphering, I can go in any area and I can tell you generally where to hunt them, how to kill them. And sometimes time of year, you're going to kill them just based on the cover and vegetation type. But in these yep. big wood settings, there's a lot of movement in different areas. They they Their core ranges are really Steve Sharks on this podcast. Their ranges are big. That's why he hunts them big. in cycles. He hunts them at intervals. Yep. And they'll they'll sit in the same spot for three days because they run through those intervals. Most people don't understand that or have the time to do that. So I'm not trying to break down Steve's strategy, but it is definitely different in his landscape and what he's hunting. Right. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean it's a it's a totally different beast of having that, you know. 20 acre to 200 acre, you know, private piece that you have groomed and manicured and set up for deer habitat or you're on, you know, state ground. That's a 50,000 acre tract up. It's a totally different ball game. It is. It is. And, and I just, I'm bringing this up now because we had all this, these different discussions and I, I really had a chance to be just free talk on these. And I've been more just, just, just mm-hmm. spitting about things that I've been thinking about recently and I challenge people right. to get out there and do things differently. You know, going down the road that I've gone down with being very strategic and talking about these percentages. And I want to remind everybody, that's not an ego thing. I'm just telling you the facts of, of my situation. Hunting very mm-hmm. effectively. And honestly, that's a fact function of my family. My wife does not want me hunting a lot. 
And uh, right. when your whole life is deer hunting, I've said this before, what's the one thing that she right. wants? She wants you home. So in order to yep. be very effective, I have to have things, you know, and, and in fact, that deer I killed last year, it, nobody will believe the hunt. I mean, it, it really was one of those situations where the deer was going to show up in that area based on the circumstances. And I had data yep. from him in, in two, two times before that. But the situation of going after that deer, that was a poor decision. So I had a 90%, in my mind, 90%, 70 to 90%, I'll say, I was going um, to encounter that deer. But I had a mm-hmm. 10 to 25% kill rate. So seeing him and killing him are two separate things. And so yes. you want to maximize your probability across the board. And I hope from this you start to envision, how do I do that? What can I do? Yes. And and I think that will give people a lot of insight into to strategy because that's where some of us shine. Like we talked about some guys on this, you know, on other podcasts or people that we know. And um, right. those are the have and have nots. When you have a vision and a yep. strategy, you will succeed, in my opinion. Yes. Yes. And, you know, and Johnny used the term that, or, you know, had a statement that just said, you just got to envision that you're going to go out there and kill them. Yeah. And you know, that is, that is the key to the hunt, whether it, it's a key to anything, you know, whether it's sports, it's like if, Hey, when you're a kid in high school and you're, you had to envision you were going to win that football game. Yeah. You know, you have to go out there and envision like, Hey, I'm going to kill that buck or you got to go out with the vision of managing a forest for, you know, wildlife and for timber is, Hey, you got to go out there with the vision of how you're gonna make this better. And I think we should end on you that. I, th- I think that's a good way yep. to end. It's it's the powerfulness in that vision and feeling yes. em- empowered to make those decisions. It's hiring the people that you need to help you develop yep. that vision. You're never going to know everything. I don't know everything. You certainly don't. Right. So we're, we're, we're in yep. the mindset is we're always learning. We're always evolving. We're always on a construction. Our property can always improve. And I, I really feel 100%. like that's that really here is, is, is the most important thing. And, and that's, a lot different than I think uh, a, a lot of people think about when they're, when they're coming up with a strategy and a plan. So vision, power, yep. and, and just doing and, and going out there and making some mistakes. You're not going to learn if, if you don't. So, you know, maybe, right. maybe take some, some uh, support from this and go out and, and cut a tree or two, uh, start to yep. identify a tree species, the type of trees that you have and what's the benefit in the landscape and uh, define those and then then think about, okay, how can I be more purposeful in my action? How can I be more efficient in my hunting? And how can I really get to the point where the strategy and everything else plays into this whole equation of success? And then you'll start hitting percentages like every third hunt, I kill something. Every you know yep. fourth hunt, I kill something. And that's meaningful because you know, the numbers that I'm talking about are really, really good numbers, but that's because I am so I, I think insane. And, and, and honestly, this year, I don't even care. I really, I, I'm going to say this truthfully. Right. I don't even really care about hunting this year. I am, um, I'm, I'm more interested in, um, just going out there and, and just enjoying the air and, and not, I'm not yep. worried about killing anymore. I, I kind of feel like I've, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm, I've met, I met my match killing that deer last year. And I think in my area, right. that's, that's the pinnacle. Um, right. There's more to come and you can do a lot more to your property, but I've just, I'm taking pride and just start continuing to learn and knowing right. that, yes, you know, that you can be more efficient and, and, and right. do layouts right. a little bit and, better, you know? And you, and you'll probably get more satisfaction when you get that text message from one of your clients saying, 
look what you helped me kill this year. Yeah, exactly. Yep, exactly. Yep, yep. And, right and, there even, with you. and even if it's uh, a year and a half or two and a half year old, because there's clients that I have that, that don't have the, the, the deer numbers and uh, population situation where they've got these great cohorts of deer. And, and I, you know, I, I, I envy their situations to some degree because their hard work pays off so greatly. And yep. uh, that is so meaningful to me because I want to see guys spending 20, 30 days a year working on your hunting property and hunting two, three times. And if yep. th- those are my clients, when you hire me, that's our objective. Those are our, those right. are our standard goals. And, uh, man, right. we, you know, we, I preach that I preach that that's my first, uh, during my first hour of conversation with clients, that's, that's what we're trying to right. teach, you know, building habitat, less hunting, you know, take your vacation yep. time in the winter time, you know, after hunting yep. season, that's where you're going to get more value. You know, so that's, uh, yep. that's a little bit opposite of what people are probably thinking right. and doing, you know, hunt less, hunt smart. Right. Yep. Yep. All right. On and on and on. This is the longest podcast that, that I've done, Kenny. So I thank well, you. Hey, I'm, I told you I could be that guy that can talk forever, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, certainly you pulled this out because I was, I was dying on the vine when we first started. I said, I, I don't even know what we're right. going to talk about today. You, you run the show. Right. And then at the end, I'm doing my rant. So I exactly, I, I love it. I appreciate everybody listening to us. Kenny will be on again, you know, probably before hunting season, um, yep. you know, follow him. You know, we talked about maybe something that we'll do together or maybe something Kenny would do. And I would certainly promote it because I think it's helping people. And our goal out of this is to yep. help people and educate. So follow him at, you know, generations forestry, Kenny Kane. He's been a, a past guest. Check out his last podcast he did with us. Kenny, thanks for being on. Yep. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing All those right. videos from Bo. Yep. So when they come out, get yes, a hold of they, me. They should, yep, they should be really good. And if anyone has any questions, you know, a forestry stuff or whatever, shoot me a message. Instagram's the easiest thing at Ken J. Kane. And, you know, maybe I'll I – I doubt it. But if there's enough interest, maybe I'd be – when I'm out in the woods, it doesn't take much to take a couple pictures and have a uh, explanation on what's going on and – if people have that interest, I'd do more of it, you know? Well, I know so. I, I would. So, you know, think about that. So thanks for, yep. thanks for offering that up to people. So follow yes. Kenny and get a hold of him. He's, he's available to, to help and help your, you know, your woodlot improve and, and get you, get you to better deer hunting. And that's one of the goals. Out yes, of this. absolutely. All right, brother. All right. We'll talk to you soon. All right, we'll talk again soon, All right. Thank you. All Great. Right, Appreciate it. All Thank right. you. Yep. Talk to you. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.